The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in a brief word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your world and the way that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. Your beloved people who you have redeemed through the blood of Christ. Would you help our hearts to lift as they should toward you? Would we see even a fresh glimpse of your glory? And would our hearts be moved to joy-filled wonder? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The universe is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Our contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of falling from a great height. We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. Uh, those are the words of a man named Carl Sagan in a TV series called Cosmos. Uh, he was an astronomer, a philosopher, a, a naturalist, which meant he thought that all there is is the stuff that we can see and measure, just matter and molecules bouncing until one day they stop bouncing. And yet, despite what he believed, he couldn't help but being awfully sentimental. When he looked up at the heavens and the stars and the galaxies, through the telescopes and all the instruments he had, he couldn't help but get the feeling that he was on the cusp of some great mystery. If he could just look a little further, maybe we'd be able to take hold of it. Well, Mr. Sagan was so close, 
Yet according to David in Psalm 19, he was so far. Because while when we look up, we should ask the question of what are the heavens teaching us? We should ask something more than that. Who are they teaching us about? Psalm 19 is a poem written by David uh, to show us the glory and the beauty of a God who made all of us and who made himself known, even in our very hearts. We'll see that in three sections this morning. Uh, first, the God who made himself known in the skies. That's what we see in verses 1 through 6. There is something very true you can know about God. And according to David, all you have to do is start by looking upward. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Theologians talk of something called general revelation. All of us can know something about God without him ever sending us a vision or a prophet or a miracle or even an inspired set of scriptures. We can know something of God just by observing the world that he's made. Every sunrise with its pink hues, every sunset with its golden glimmers before it fades away, uh, every wonder of this world as you stand before the might of the Niagara Falls or on the cusp of the Grand Canyon, every tree and bird and flower, all of it teaches you that there is a God that made us and oh, is he glorious. Uh, that's because everything that he has made has an artist's signature upon it. Uh, this week, I read a story about someone that bought a painting at a garage sale. Uh, they didn't think much of it. They liked it, so they thought they might hang it in their office, so they paid $4 for it. For a time, it sat on the wall of their office, no one but them seeing it. Uh, eventually, they got sick of it. They put it in the closet, and only years later, they pulled it out, and we're intrigued by these little markings on the corner. Turned out to be an artist's signature. Uh, with a little research, they found out it wasn't just any artist, but a famous one. And that painting that they bought for $4 is worth an estimated $250,000. When an artist makes something carefully, beautifully, they write their signature on it. Because the piece of art tells you something of the one who created it. So, according to David, it is of this world that we're in. If you will have ears to hear, day by day it will preach a sermon to you, one that is preached without words. David says as much in verses 2 through 4, that each and every day that there is something that God is saying through the rustling grass, through the trees standing tall, if you would just listen, your heart would be instructed to know that there is a God that made all of it. And you're supposed to ask a question. What must he be like? See, since the dawn of humanity, each and every person that's ever existed has lived in God's world, seeing his glory all around them, even in their own bodies. Uh, this week, our kids in our homeschool uh, a couple weeks ago now. Uh, we're learning about the amazing mechanism 
of blood clotting. Uh, you get a little cut and you don't bleed to death because God has made your wonderful body in such a way that an army of platelets go to work creating a little clump that ends up turning into a scab that stops the bleeding and heals your body without you even knowing it's happening. All these things are God's communication, his revelation to us. Uh, David says, of all the things that God has revealed, though, in his nature and in general revelation, the chief thing that he wants to draw our attention to is the sun. That's what you see at the end of verse 4 through verse 6. He describes the sun as energetic, vigorous, unstoppable, and all-encompassing. Uh, he thinks of it like a fit young man on a track, ready to spring off the blocks at full speed. He says, think of it like the march of a set of football players coming out of the locker room through that gauntlet of fans, running forward, nothing possible to be able to stop them. So it is with the sun. Day by day, it comes out from where it was hiding. It marches its way across the sky. There's not a thing that could ever stop it until it finishes its course and sets at the end of another day. And most tellingly about the sun, though, is what it does while it hangs in the sky. Uh, right now, we have a little respite of it because of the shade and the clouds. You're probably thankful for that. Because if you're in the sun, you know how powerful it could be. It bears down on all of us. We try to work underneath it, it wears us down. But as it does so, it does something else. It lights up the world. It lets us see everything around us. It is complete in illuminating all that is. Now, in this, David wants us to draw our attention and our hearts upward to one aspect of God's character in particular, that is his glory. See, God is more glorious than even that beautiful orb, the sun, that he created. He is more beautiful than all of the intricate systems in this world. And he wants us to, day by day, hear that sermon he's preaching through it all. So that when we see those golden hues of a sunset or the mystery of how a hummingbird flutters back and forth between the flowers or just feel the gentle breeze on the back of our necks, we would ask ourselves, what sort of God must he be to make something so glorious as this? Uh, maybe this week you shut off your podcasts and your television, and maybe you pull back from all your regular calendar full of activities, and you just take a moment to stop and listen. Maybe, just maybe, in the rustling grass, you'll hear him pass, and your heart will say, what sort of God he must be to have made this. Uh, God speaks to us. He does so through the skies and the natural world. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis points out, though, that uh, David ends this section of his poetry with that powerful, illuminating sun for a reason. Because next he turns to another powerful, illuminating thing, the very word of God. That's our second thing we'll see this morning, that our Lord has revealed himself in the scriptures. He's revealed himself in the scriptures. That's what we see in verses 7 through 11. There's a shift that happens that you can detect almost immediately. Um, The first six verses of the poem, David is describing God using the term in Hebrew, El. It's a true way to describe God, but it's an impersonal one. It is fitting for the powerful creator, but one whom you frankly can't know all that much about. Uh, You can look at the trees and the sun and the Niagara Falls, and you can know something of the power and glory of God, but you can't know his heart. Uh, You can't know his character. For that, you need something else. Uh, Which is why David switches from that word El for God to the word Yahweh, the covenant name that God gave for his people to call him. Or as your English translations probably translate it, the Lord. Now that's because God doesn't just exist. He wants us to know him and to be known by him. Uh, There are six lines to this stanza of the poetry, and they follow a pattern. I'll just tell you it up front. There's a description of how God has revealed himself in the word of God, the scriptures, Six different ways he does that with an attached uh, description of it. We'll go through each of them in a second. And then after that, there is a benefit in the second line. Why is it that this revelation from God is so valuable to us? Now, because it's poetry, don't get too caught up in the details. Just I'm going to read through that first set of the names he calls, the revealed scriptures, and the description of them. And just let this wash over you. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are are true. If you look at the canvas which David is painting on with these words, what you see emerge is an incredible, beautiful revelation from God to his people through what we call the Bible. It's called the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord. Your Bible has so many different types of literature in it. Each of them are valuable and intentionally given by God for us. Uh, Whether it's the stories that tell us about the actions of God in the world. Or whether it's the poems that reveal God's heart to us. Or the various letters and different writings he gives us to instruct us, even his commandments to show us what our lives are to look like. All of it is God revealing himself to us. Brothers and sisters, it is not a bad thing 
that God reveals himself in written form to us. It's the greatest treasure we have in this world. We could never know God and what he's like in his character of holiness and mercy and steadfast love if he had not taken the time to reveal himself and to make sure that that revelation was written down so that one day we could hear it and have our hearts respond to it. So first, I just want to ask you a question. Do you think of God's word this way? Uh, Do you think of it mainly as a set of burdensome rules you have to follow? Cold, hard facts to learn? Or is it a gracious, glorious, beautiful God revealing himself to you so you can truly know him? Well, if that's not motivation enough, we see the second thing that he weaves into this poetry are the benefits of this revealed word. Uh, It it has a series of benefits that nothing in this world can compare to. Again, listen to them line by line. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices, makes the heart rejoice. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. It is righteous altogether. Uh, God's word is given to us for our benefit. Uh, It can correct our mistaken notions about ourselves and God and the world. It can help us to live in a way that pleases God and turn away from things that don't please him. Uh, This is undoubtedly what David is emphasizing, that God's word has great benefit if we will in fact obey it when we rightly hear it. Uh, The poetry breaks in the last line of this section. You can see that end of verse 8 through uh, verse 11. It's much longer and it has a much more detailed description of the benefits of God's word. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring together. Sorry, end of verse 9. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Uh, You can spend a life acquiring all sorts of riches in this world. Uh, You can venture far and wide and look for the sweetest culinary delights that humans have ever found. Yet nothing will compare to the surpassing value and delight of God's written word to us, his people. Uh, Through it, we truly know what he's like. And through through it, we know that he has invited us to come close to be called his beloved sons and daughters, to be the apple of his eye. So my dear brothers and sisters, what I want this morning for us to take from this section of the poetry is a heart shift when it comes to the word of God. Uh, Please don't think of reading God's word as merely an obligation, as merely another burden in a life full of them. Instead, see them as a loving invitation because they are revelation. God inviting you to truly know him and be known by him. 
And yes, if you understand that, then they are not burdensome and you will find yourself wanting to obey, uh, wanting to live out his commands, wanting to live by his precepts, changing your very life. Because if a God so beautiful of that as that, as glorious as that, wants to know you, surely the least thing we can do is respond to his word given to us. Uh, but of course, there is a problem. What's the first thing that happens when you start taking seriously the desire to live out the commandments of the Bible and to align your heart with the heart that revealed of the, heart, the God of the Bible? Well, of course, it leads to us realizing just how far we fall short, which is why the poem ends where it does, and we need so badly to see the third and final thing. Our Redeemer revealing our hearts. Our Redeemer revealing our hearts in verses 12 through 14. I was having a conversation with someone um, about a week ago, uh, we were talking about various life issues and what they should do and what other people think they should do. And I detected something, something that I had noticed in my own heart many times. The unshakable assumption that I'm right. Uh, whatever we're talking about, uh, whatever topic we're on or whatever opinion we're giving, each of us has this propensity to think whatever our judgment is, well, surely that must be right. And by implication, anyone else that disagrees with us, well, surely they must be wrong. I heard this same tendency that I've noticed in my heart over the years coming out in this person I was talking to. So I asked him a question. I asked him, let's put aside all the issues you're talking about. Let's just ask a more fundamental question. How can you even know if you're the one that's wrong? Ask yourself this question. How can it, you ever know if you are in fact wrong about something? See, if you start with the assumption that you're right because of all the reasons you already have in your head, then it's not possible to ever detect your errors, at least not until they are so patently obvious that you have paid the penalty that comes for your misunderstanding. Uh, that's a tendency that's been present in the human heart long before I ever came around goes back thousands of years, which is why David asks that question in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? If you don't know there's a problem, you have no hope of fixing it. And that's the real problem with the human heart. Uh, we're so deluded in our sins that we don't think anything is even wrong. But as you allow God's word to light up the inner recesses of your heart, as the Holy Spirit turns the light on, something happens. The cockroaches of your sins, even just for a moment, are visible before they scurry off into new corners to try and hide in the dark. It's an uncomfortable thing to face up to the fact that you are a sinner. But that is the starting point for finding the good news that God is your Redeemer. Uh, David was a man who had many sins of his heart. If you know his life story, he had sins he was not aware of. And then he had super spectacular sins where he knew exactly what he was doing. And it's telling that he prays to God to help him with both. End of verse 12, he asks for help with 
The sins that he doesn't know about. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Uh, He knows his heart well enough to know that he is in fact missing many sins that are in fact present. All of us are. Uh, When you become a Christian, you don't stop sinning. In fact, you become more aware of the sins that are there, uh, which means you become more aware of your need for redemption. Even the sins that you weren't even thinking about as you acted upon them. Good news is that you can ask God for help, even for the things you don't yet know about yourself, because God knows your heart perfectly. And one day he'll reveal it to you, whether in this life or once you are in glory. There's a second category for sins, and that are those that are done intentionally. He calls that presumptuous sins in verse 13. Uh, We know the difference between a sin that you unintentionally or unknowingly do and one you do when you know exactly what's happening. Um, I had a cousin who was a few years younger than me, which means I got to see him grow up. Uh, When he was very, very young, he did very immature things. There was one time we were having a family gathering, and he grabbed the TV remote, and he jammed his little hand on the volume button and caused the TV to go up to full blast while we were trying to have a family gathering, and it was super loud, and we all ran over and told him, don't do that. We turned down the TV. You know, no one got on his case too hard because he was so little. He really didn't know what he was doing. But when he was about 11, he got it in his head that it would be really funny if he hid the family remote control inside the VCR. Uh, Kids, you don't know what a VCR is, but uh, it's big enough for you to hide a remote control inside of. And so it was a solid six months until someone stumbled upon it. And when they figured out what had happened, you can bet, because of his intentional sin, there was a severe consequence. Now, the law of God differentiates between unintentional and intentional sins. And each of us in our hearts has the, constantly has the presence of both. The sins we don't know about, that God makes us aware of at some point. And the sins that we know exactly what we're doing. And we choose to do it anyway. Now, according to David, God can help with both. And that is good news because on our own, we would have no ability to prevent ourselves from being overcome by them. Or as David put it, those sins would have dominion over us. See, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what the Bible teaches us about the human heart. That on our own, we're not okay. And in fact, we can't just educate ourselves enough and do well enough by our own efforts to one day rid our hearts of the things that plague them, the things the Bible calls sins. In fact, according to the Bible, those very sins are our Lord and Master. On our own, we are slaves to them. But the good news that the Bible teaches is that God is a Redeemer, that He has done what's needed for us to be freed from the slavery of sin by paying the penalty our hearts deserve in His own blood. Uh, That's the message of Christianity, that the man Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave up his perfect life to save sinners through a sacrifice of his blood. Uh, Friend, if you've never thought about these questions of what is it that I'm missing about my heart? Or what does God think of me? 
Or what do I need to be do? What do I even need to do to be declared innocent? The Bible tells us all we have to do is repent of our sins and believe in Jesus as our Savior, our Redeemer, and our Lord. And if you do that, friend, truly from the heart, all of your sins will be wiped away now and forever. You will be declared innocent and blameless. And you will know God not just as your creator, but you'll know him as your good Lord. And you'll know him as your father and friend. Uh, Friend, if you don't know the God who has made you and the world you live in, today could be the day you meet him. Would you trust him through Jesus Christ and find the salvation of your soul that you need? Now, to all of us who are Christians, uh, realize that you have been redeemed from your sins. You have been declared innocent and blameless, not because you obeyed well enough, uh, but because you have built your life on the rock that is the man, Jesus Christ. You have found yourself redeemed by his blood. And by faith, you have declared Jesus is Lord. And he is the glorious one that everything in this world sings about. Uh, Which means you can appropriate David's meditation in verse 14 for your own heart. Uh, Not as trying to earn something from God, but as the response of someone who's been redeemed by him. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Another way of saying that is, God, would you take all of me, my whole heart, my words and my attentions and everything in between, would you take all of it as a freely given offering to you my Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. Brothers and sisters, you have been saved by your Redeemer Christ. He has set you free from your sins, and now you get to live a life, not for yourself, but a life for him, indwelled by his spirit, guided by his scriptures, a life not perfect, but pleasing and acceptable to the one who saved you the glorious God of heaven. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song that meditates on this very thing. I want to read the words of one of the stanzas for you. And let it be your prayer that Jesus would do this as he has revealed himself and even revealed your heart this morning. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. Let's pray. Our great God of highest heaven, our glorious, good, and grace-filled Lord Jesus, Would you now accept this, our heart of worship made as a free offering of love to you? Would you give us joy as we allow you to illuminate our hearts and even this world around us by your word? 
Let there be no vice or sin that resists your holy war. Would you be Lord of every square inch of us? Help us now to sing in a way that honors you. We pray in your mighty name. Amen.